0: Welcome to another episode of Odd Lots. I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor at Bloomberg Markets. And uh, listeners, you're going to be sad to hear that we've lost my co-host Joe Eisenthal to the global elite, that is. As of recording time, Joe is still at the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, mingling with people like Kevin Spacey and Joe Biden and whoever else. But I'm happy to say that here with me now is Luke Kawa, who is Bloomberg Markets reporter and a semi famous Canadian. Luke, we're Both Davos rejects today, right?
1: Uh, Yes, Tracy. They tend not to let riffraff like us in there.
0: Yes, this is very sad. (laughs) Well, on that note, Luke, I thought for this week's podcast, it might be fun to go back to five Davoses ago, by which I mean 2011, when an analyst at a consultancy called Oliver Wyman published a report while at the meeting in Switzerland. And the report was called The Financial Crisis of 2015, An Avoidable History.
1: Uh, what I miss? I, I don't think we had a banking crisis in 2015.
0: We definitely didn't, and we're going to talk uh, some more about that. But I think what the report was really, really good at was kind of predicting the commodities crash and the idea that banks could have losses from bad energy loans. And in fact, we just got through a bank earning season where we did see a whole bunch of them setting aside more money to cover these sorts of things.
1: Can you uh, whet my appetite a little? Give me a little sample of that now.
0: Yeah, uh, I've got the report right here. Um, Bear in mind, once again, this is five years old now. Here's, a, here's one thing it said. Based on favorable demographic trends and continued liberalization, the growth story for emerging markets was accepted by almost everyone. However, much of the economic activity in these markets was buoyed by cheap money being pumped into the system by Western central banks. Commodities prices had acted as a sponge to soak up the excess money supply, and commodities rich emerging economies were the main beneficiaries. So pretty prescient, right?
1: This was written in 2011 and not a week ago.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to give the impression that everything in this report has happened. Uh, There are some things that it does get wrong. But it's looking pretty good. And I want to bring in the author of the report, who is a partner at Oliver Wyman. His name is Barry Wilkinson. And he is the one who wrote this very prescient thing some five years ago in another snowy Davos meeting. Barry, welcome to the show. Hi there. Just give us a bit of background about who you are and what you do at Oliver Wyman.
2: Yes, I'm currently the co-head of Oliver Wyman's finance and risk practice, so I guess my specialty is uh, risk management. I've been working at the company for 22 years, so I got, I've got kind of got deep specialties in a number of risk management topics, credit risk, market risk. I work mainly with the, uh, the big investment banks at the moment, so I've kind of got some uh, specialties around the trading risk management side of things as well.
0: All right, so take us back to January 2011, and you published this report to coincide with Davos. What made you uh, decide to do this?
2: Yeah, well, I think, I guess the main purpose of the report was to encourage banks to focus more on stress testing. And I think we've, you know, we've seen since then um, you know, a large wave of work around you know CCAR, EBA, ECB type stress testing. Um, I actually have a background in you know go back to my university days. I used to you know be sitting in the lab, building bridges, um, testing, you know stress testing, heavy load, lateral wind, you know trying to twist twist the bridge, and it basically boiled down to you know could the could the bridge withstand you know a certain level of stress? That was kind of what the the whole uh, point of the exercise was. And was
1: there any special reason why you chose to release it at Davos?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess um, we, we we write these annual reports. You may have seen we just released another report more around the fintech one this year. I think it was a, you know, we were in the post-crisis environment. The feeling I had at the time was, you know, there were still lessons to be learned from the from the previous crisis, and you know, my my sentiment was, you know, I, you know, being in risk management for such a long period, I'd seen lots of crises come and go. And my worry was that we were very quickly going to lose the lessons learned from the previous crisis. And I wanted to really get out there, this idea that you know, we should constantly be thinking ahead. It's not about thinking about chances of there being another crisis. Actually, there will be another crisis, you know, in the next three or four or five years. And therefore, we should move to a mode of, you know, banning and quantify, quantifying the impact of, of potential crises.
1: Can you take us back to 2011 and for the uninitiated, just, you know, explain the basic thrust of your thesis?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I guess I was trying to get across the idea of, um, you know, so moving more towards, you know, stress testing as a risk management philosophy. And then I, I, I used a particular scenario as a way of bringing the whole topic to life. So I thought if I just, you know, focused on the mechanics of stress testing, it would have been quite a dry read. So I, I wrote a virtual <laughs> history, which was basically laying out the scenario, taking us from 2011 to 2015, where I was talking about, you know, Commodity price, price bubble um, getting uh, you know further inflated by loose monetary policy coming from you know um, the, the, the Western central banks, um, you know the emerging markets uh, countries, particularly the commodities producers, feeling the the benefits of that, and then at some point, you know people realizing that the narrative around you know China growing growing forever, uh, you know as China slowed, we'd see the whole bubble burst, and the, I guess the timing turned out to be quite. Um, timely in terms of last year. That really started to, to happen.
0: Well, so I want to set the scene a little bit. So this is early 2011. We're two years out of the financial crisis. Markets have gone up. Uh, people are feeling pretty good. You have all these politicians, executives, bankers partying at Davos. And you're sat in a hotel room predicting another financial crisis. What was the response?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't I was. Most person at the time with, with everybody I actually i mean i'd say there were two camps so i could give you two extreme examples so um in one example i had a risk manager in in a bank you know coming with with her report and saying you know ask me to autograph it so i think amongst the risk management community it was a feeling that i was kind of standing up for their um you know their need to kind of point out potential risks etc at the other end of the spectrum i, I hear in um you know Amongst commodity traders, people were were talking about, you know, uh, that bloody Wilkinson report. So, (laughs) I think, you you know, that that kind of naturally shows the tension you have in a bank that the risk managers are really focusing more on protecting downside risks, worrying about the interests of depositors, of, you know, debt holders, whereas the, the front office are more aligned with the kind of shareholder interest and thinking more about upside potential. I think that's a natural tension, which is good. I just think the problem is sometimes it gets out of balance. It can actually get out of balance in either direction. You know, I guess pre-crisis it was out of balance in the direction of, you know, short-term upside. Post-crisis you might argue sometimes, that you know, the regulators are pulling it too far in the other direction. But, um, you know, that, that's I think that's a natural tension that needs to be, um, you know, explored.
0: Well, let's talk about commodities for a second because, um, as you've mentioned already, this is kind of um – a centerpiece of your report. And back in 2011, the commodity space was booming. I mean, I, I think we forget that now, but it was just um, yeah. going sort of gangbusters. Why did you decide to focus on the risks in the commodity space?
2: Well, I, I think that's the whole point. It, you know, whenever you're looking at the next crisis, you should be looking at the current bubble. And you know, any time asset prices are rising at you know, 100% per annum, or you know, I think oil prices rose something like 800% between you know they're low of seventeen up to one hundred and twenty dollars a barrel or whatever, so you know when you start seeing that kind of asset price appreciation, you know there, there may well be speculation underlying it, but there's normally an asset financing bubble behind it, and you know anything any kind of financing supporting the assumption of ever increasing prices is always you know a recipe for uh, for debt problems later so so that was the you know if I was looking at potential Issues now. I'd be looking at you know London property, which is also seeing you know lots of rapid increases. So predicting the next crisis, it's really looking at where people are making a lot of money now. Really, it's obviously a very contrarian perspective. But it's there's no. I think the the idea of you know there'd be no point focusing on the subprime market now as you're you know just because that was the previous crisis. You'd always be looking at the next the next bubble.
1: So we we brought up the big thing that you really nailed in this report. That's the the commodities downturn and that that whole bust. So, but give the opportunity to critique yourself a little. What do you think you missed or what hasn't really played out the way you expected it to?
2: Yeah, so that, that's right. So I think we've got to the stage now where the you know China has slowed. There is a talk of a crisis centered around, you know, the mining companies, commodities producing nations, as we said in the report, what, what, what we haven't seen yet is a full-blown debt crisis. And, I, you know, I don't think we can call it a financial crisis, which was the term we used in the report until we see a, um, you know, a, um, debt coming into the equation. We've seen equity market corrections. We've seen commodity prices corrections. But we haven't seen massive um, debt restructuring or or bad loans. Um, so so from my, my view, I, I think it's only a matter of time before that happens. You know, I think... It, it's already coming to light that there was a fair amount of financing, you know, behind that. And the next next step for me, I think, is, is to take it from the macro level of, you know, Brazil, Russia, and, you know, the commodities producing countries having problems to the micro level of, well, which countries, companies, and, you know, and you know, are most vulnerable and, you know, which banks are ultimately holding um, or which banks are exposed to those threats and, you know, if there is any toxic... Um, lending out there, who's holding it, and are they well-capitalized? And I, I think that's, um, that really calls to, you know, coming back full circle to as recommending more stress testing. I think the U.S. and European systems have now adopted stress testing as a kind of institutional thing that they run every year. I think the emerging markets um, regulators, you know, having had a less severe crisis this time around, haven't really pushed through the same measures. So I I think, you know, I I would be calling now for, you know, the emerging markets regulators to start taking a look at their individual banking systems and, you know, and looking at individual institutions and running, running stress tests along the lines of, you know, further deterioration.
0: Well, just on the banking point, uh, one other thing you kind of point out in the report is this idea that a lot of risk has actually been squeezed from the banking system into what's known as the shadow banking system. So uh, non-deposit taking institutions, I guess, might be the standard definition, although some people would um, disagree with me. Can you talk a little bit about that thesis?
2: Yeah, so I I think that you know, I think broadly that hypothesis has played out. I think it's quite difficult to back, back test. You know, some of the you know the specific things we said because you know, by, by its very nature, it's kind of lurking in the shadows. And as we saw with um, you know, the previous round of shadow banking, all these kind of light vehicles that mm-hmm. were hidden off balance sheets. Not a lot of people know about these things until you know the crisis hits, and then suddenly you know a bank has to reconsolidate this you know off balance sheet activity. So there may well be. A new phase of that, where it could be the Chinese banks this time having to reconsolidate, you know, all of these trusts back onto their balance sheet to, you know, to save face or whatever. But um, yeah, I, I, it's very difficult to say where where all that stuff is, is is currently lurking. But it's pretty clear, you know, the banks have definitely um, been feeling the squeeze. So you know, a lot of the big banks have gone from having a you know a two or three trillion dollar balance sheet down to now you know one and a half trillion dollars. And at the same time, you know, if you look at, it's, it's difficult to put numbers around it, but any any report you look at, that you tend to see, you know, kind of a growing um, shadow banking liabilities. Um, at the same time, so I suspect um, there's there's quite a lot out there.
0: So it's five years after you published this report. Have you been back to Davos since then?
2: Uh, I, I haven't. I mean, we, we go there every year. It's usually the um, you know, the author of of that year's report who um, who goes and attends alongside you know a couple of our um, you know, more senior guys. So um, it's uh, is, I haven't been back. I, I mean, I, I have been thinking of doing a kind of um, you know a, a victory a, lap, a new report. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I could do, but um, no, just more of a um, you know. You know what? You know, maybe next year, some more more forward-looking views on on risk management and finance and all that kind of stuff.
0: So, what are you looking at right now? What's next on the horizon?
2: Yeah, well, actually, I, as I said, I think you know looking back um, on prior on the previous crisis is often not the way to think. So, if, I'm, if i was looking at the financial service industry now, what we've been focusing on this in this new report is really that disruptive forces. So. You know, rather than it being a crisis that hits the banking system next time, maybe it's the you know somebody coming in and completely disrupting the cost you know the cost structures of the banking system, and that could be equally you know equally deadly for some of the banks if they if they're not able to adapt. That I think you know, some of the things we mentioned in this year's report is more around um, you know it's actually the the regulators are you know, are actually helping the banks to create you know barriers to, barriers of entry for for new players, and and if those barriers to entry were not there, you know, uh, finance is the ultimate commodity in many ways, so, you know, it it would ultimately just be about who's got the best technology and the best cost uh, cost structure to deliver that commodity, Um, but at the moment, having access to the central bank, having access to, you know, deposit insurance just gives, um, you know, banks a massive massive advantage that they will, I think will preserve their position for, for quite a while. Um, but I think at some point, you know, we've seen the payments part of things getting picked off. I think at some point, different parts of the value chain will start to get eroded by these new players. I think that's a big threat for the banks.
0: Yeah. On that note, I mean, I have to say we have seen uh, at least one disruptive uh, fintech player lending club ask for access to central bank facilities, which <laughs> is pretty amazing yeah. and would potentially put them on a more even footing with uh, banking yeah. competitors.
2: Exactly. I mean, I mean, one way, one direction you can take it is in the direction of, um, I think the most difficult bit to disrupt is the, the, is the maturity transformation side of things. So in order to play the maturity transformation trick, when you get the run on your liabilities, because you're playing the maturity transformation trick, you know, if you can turn to the central bank access, you, you obviously can then weather a few a few cycles. And if you don't have access, you can't. So, you know, We've been thinking about whether you could, you know, the central bank could set up some kind of utility which kind of centralizes the maturity transformation aspect of things and then allows people to tap into, you know, long-term sources of funding and then, you know, lending then just becomes a commodity. And similarly, you know, investing in short-term liabilities is is, is another commodity. So you'd have kind of the money market funds type, you know, part of the value chain. You'd have the, the pure lender and then you'd have this money money market, uh, sorry, money transformation utility sitting in the center, sorry, maturity transformation comes back on the central bank anyway, you know, during the crisis, then maybe they should be managing it in the first place. So it's just a, it's kind of a, you know, a utopian um, thought at this point, but uh, I think that that's where you'd need to get to if you really want to open up competition across, you know, the, you know, the, the, the core products of banking.
1: And to go back to 2011, one of the... Lines from your report that really stood out to me was you know, the market was once again rewarding the riskiest strategies in reference to uh, to investors' treatment of banks in the around the 2011 yeah. period. And I, I wanted to know the the market seemed doesn't seem to be rewarding much right now. What are the risky strategies yeah. out right out there right now that you think the market's rewarding <laughs> that it might not be?
2: Well, it's it's a lot more complicated now. Isn't it? I think in the days where you know you could basically create shareholder value just by Increasing leverage in your bank, um, you know, increasing leverage just multiplies your return on assets by your leverage and creates return on equity. And then it was – it was, and actually – and also that leverage also gives – makes it look like you're growing as well. So you, you get all these massive P uh, multiples. It's, in today's context, you have, you know, regulators looking at you thinking that you're too leveraged and then suddenly forcing you to raise capital, which, you know, is never great for share prices. So it's it's a, a lot more complicated um I guess the you know the most successful strategies which I wouldn't necessarily condone would be the ones where you can basically take on more risk and more leverage and then you know but you know outside of the uh the purview of the regulators who are you know coming in and trying to clamp down on it so you know I I guess the risky strategies that might be successful in the short term might be the ones that are linked to the kind of the shadow banking activities where you can actually take you know, take risk off off outside the uh, the radar of of the regulators, but you know, again, that that's a very short-termist approach, which will unravel at some point. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think in general for banks, it's all about it's all about costs at this point. I think the you know risk is generally a commodity. You know, you generally get paid for the the risks, the, the risk that and the more risk you take, the more return you get. It's a pretty old uh, cliche, but the I think banks really need to differentiate themselves on costs at this point. So I think the trying to get back to the old days of 50 to 1 leverage just isn't going to happen. So, that's not going to be the the way of boosting return on equity going forward. It's got to be, you know, a leaner operation.
0: All right, Barry, uh, last question. Are you, um, when you go back and look at this report, which, you know, does seem fairly prescient five years later, are you... Proud of what you've done? Are you happy, or do you feel frustration that some of these eventualities are actually playing out in the market, even though there were warnings about them? How do you actually feel about it now?
2: Yeah. Well, our um, I think the last line in the report was that the you know the, this the, the crises are not avoidable. We call that an avoidable history, but the reality is crises are not avoidable. You, you, you basically will get you know a business cycle. Continuing forever, and we'll we'll see financial crisis every you know, five or ten years. I think what we what I would be proud of would be if I'd helped any you know any banks um, avoid being the victims of the of the crisis, or whether we'd helped you know regulators better prepare for the crisis this time around. And you know we we will see the results of that you know this time as effectively what we're now seeing is a real stress test. Where there's an emerging markets crisis, and we're seeing uh, we will see you know who withstands that well and I guess the regulators that have helped their banks prepare well and recapitalize will see that those banks weather the storm quite well and the ones that haven't, um, you know, may, may see some problems. So, and, you know, as I was mentioned, I think you know, it wasn't popular with the, uh, the commodities traders and I think a lot of banks withdrew quite heavily out of commodities over the last few years, you know, prior to the product commodity price. So. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, there have been some aspects of us helping, you know, banks um, avoid some of the losses that that, that would, would otherwise be happening now. So, yeah, I guess I'm I'm happy with um, with the results. But we, you know, as I said, we haven't we haven't seen this play out yet. So it'll be interesting to see uh, who the winners and losers are in the actual the actual crisis that happens now.
0: All right, on that cheerful note, uh, Barry, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. All right, Luke. Well, I have a feeling that Joe's going to be mad at us for going really wonky in that discussion, but I enjoyed it. I found it really interesting. What do you think?
1: I mean, I certainly did, too. I mean, one thing that you know, would have been nice to get to was uh, Barry was really worried about the treatment of, of sovereigns. And, yeah. you know, there's a certain point to be made that financial crises, and especially the last one, it's, it's a product of you know, banks having a lot of assets on their balance sheet that they think are safe, but aren't. Mm-hmm. So and he predicted that kind of the the HQLA that those kind of moves would eventually end up in the same thing with highly indebted western nations being forced to restructure. And right now the market's saying that that's just not the case. The market is yeah. very willing to lend forever to, you know, anyone with a printing press and even European <laughs> nations that don't have them.
0: Right. So instead of seeing a sovereign debt crisis if anything we've seen almost the opposite, exactly. especially as markets have sold off recently. Exactly. Um I guess the other thing that I was thinking, you know, I don't want listeners to come away thinking that consultancies are always uh, geniuses. Um, We've seen Oliver Wyman make poorer recommendations before, for instance, uh, telling UBS to go all in fixed income in 2007. That wasn't such a great recommendation. But I think when people talk about this kind of stuff five years before it happens it does deserve some attention so i liked hearing about the reaction to the report in davos how people felt about it at the time the idea that commodities trainers were upset is kind of amusing now
1: i didn't like to hear the idea that he thinks you know it's just a matter of time before this plays out that doesn't exactly paint a a great picture of what we're in for and what we'll be writing about in 2020
0: no that's very true Well, I think we should wrap it up. Thank you, Luke, for joining me today.
1: My pleasure. Hope I uh, filled the shoes.
0: This is another episode of Odd Lots. Tune in next week for uh, another one, potentially less geeky than this one. Joe should be back by then. I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor at Bloomberg Markets. You can catch me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
1: And I'm Luke Kawa, Reporter at Bloomberg Markets. You can also catch me on Twitter at LJ Kawa.
0: Podcast Oddlots, but we are also very proud of Bloomberg's other growing suite of original podcasts, all designed to help you navigate the complexities of business, financial markets, and the global economy. So, in addition to our own podcast, please don't miss Benchmark with Dan Moss, Tori Stillwell, and Aki Ito an informative, jargon free look at the inner workings of the global economy. Then there's Deal of the Week with our M&A reporter, Alex Sherman, which is a breakdown of the biggest M&A deals and gives you an inside peek at corporate boardrooms. All three shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast for Android, Bloomberg.com, and of course, the Bloomberg Terminal.